Well, if you have a copy of the scriptures, you want to go ahead and turn. We're going to look again this week in the book of Philippians. We'll have it for you on the screen. Feel free to pull it up. App on any device you, you might use it on. Look at Philippians chapter 1. <coughs> As you're turning there, thinking through Thanksgiving week, uh, which is now upon us. I was thinking through uh, recently, a few years back, uh, it was 2019, I, I believe, I'm pretty sure. Um, we were in the mountains with my family, uh, my, my dad and mom, and then my sister and her family. All of us in one big cabin uh, for the week. We get to do that uh, once every couple of years, three or four years, something like that. And we were doing Thanksgiving week together in a cabin, and I was sitting there late at night probably contemplating how I was going to survive until the next morning given how many pancakes and salted caramel, turtle, pecan, whatevers. And like I, I just, I, I had gone nuts and I was miserable. But I remember getting distracted a little bit in a good way by a football game that was on TV. It was the Egg Bowl. And I don't know why they call it the Egg Bowl. Um, if you know, you can tell me later. Uh, you don't really have to because I'm going to forget and it doesn't really matter. But please tell me just because I'd like to talk to you. All right? But it was the Egg Bowl. It was Mississippi State versus Ole Miss, the two most well-known programs in the state of Mississippi playing each other. It's a long-time rivalry. And at that point in time, Ole Miss, uh, their football team had been through a, a, a lot of problems, a lot of issues. They had some character issues with the team, with the coach. There was a lot of stuff going on. There were violations. There were uh, penalties coming for them as a team. And they had just gotten this guy elevated to be their coach for at least the season and just a character guy. And that was going to help the team at least just kind of survive the hurt. I didn't even know how good they were going to be at football and weren't necessarily that great. But it comes down to the very end of the season and it's them having a chance to knock off their rival and their rival, Mississippi State, had, had been beating them pretty good throughout the game. But Ole Miss decided they're going to come back and they're going to fight back. And they fight all the way back. And with four seconds left in the game, they score a touchdown. They get their six points. and They're going to have the chance to kick what's kind of usually the obligatory extra point, kind of an easy kick through the uprights to get the extra one point. They get that point, they're going to tie the game. And so when they hit this pass for this touchdown, everybody just goes nuts. The team is celebrating. And I watched as elation turned into absolute agony. <laughs> Some of you remember, I can tell, right? It was like everybody was pumped. All the old Miss people in the stands were screaming and, and probably getting to be a little braggadocious towards the Mississippi State fans because we've done this and we're, we're about to go to overtime. We got the momentum. We're going to win this game. Everything went to pot, though, because in the moment when the guy scored the touchdown, he let the emotion get way too big for him. And, and he even said this in, in following. The emotion just got the best of me. And I'm not sure why the emotions drove him to this place, but this is where emotion took him is that to celebrate the touchdown, he didn't high-five, he didn't jump up and chest bump, right? He have a choreographed dance. He didn't do any of that stuff. What he did was get down on all fours, raise a leg, and mark the end zone as his territory, right? Now, a lot literally, right? But that's, that's the motion that he went through, right? If he had literally done that, it'd be a whole different story. I probably wouldn't be talking about it right now. He probably would have been arrested, right? There'd been all kind of different stuff going on. But he got down, and that was the way that he chose to celebrate. And so his team received a penalty, and instead of this obligatory one extra point kick from a few yards away, they have to scoot back a whole 15 yards further. And so this is becoming like a serious kick in not great weather. It's cold. It's a little bit wet outside. And the distance actually made the kick miss. <laughs> the kick sailed off to the side right at the end. And if it had been closer, it would have gone through before it started sailing. But it didn't. And they missed. And all of a sudden, they have all lost because of the actions of this one guy. <laughs> you been there? 
You've been there when somebody else's actions have ramifications for yourself or ramifications for the whole group. You remember running those extra laps in practice for something that that one guy did or those one couple of girls on the team did, just that one small group. Everybody got to run because of just them. (laughs) That stunk, didn't it? You know how there's those rules that you don't like at your workplace that didn't used to be there, but they're there because somebody did the thing they shouldn't have done? Used to, you could be a little more lax. If you came in at 801 or 803, everybody was fine with that. But one person had to make 803 into like 827 every day, and so now you got to scan a card. <laughs> used to, you could use the microwave however you wanted to. Now you probably have to punch in a code to even get access because somebody won't clean that bad boy up, right? Is a piece of pocket is going to make a mess, clean it up, right? That's what you're thinking. Everybody's penalized because the actions of a few. The reality is that in, in our world, in our culture, it's really easy for us all of us, to get easily sucked into the wormhole and just the blinders on and the narrow focus of our own lives. To just think about me. To think about what's affecting me, how to overcome my hardships, how to reach the goals that I have for myself, how to keep my family going in the right direction. Me, 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 and me. And yet the reality is that we are wired by the God of creation to be dependent on many ways amongst each other and amongst other people. We just are, right? And some, some of that is your family and people who are near and dear to you, and you know that a little more clearly. But even the actions of some you don't know as well can impact you. But the reality for us is we're in this series called Happy, is this, is that our happiness is in some ways designed by God to be connected to our interconnectedness with each other. <laughs> we're not supposed to have a full tank of happiness unless we are seeking out full relationships with other people. We're going to see that today as we continue on our study, the book of Philippians. If you'll remember, the Apostle Paul is writing this letter to the church in Philippi. It's a church that he started. You can read about that in Acts chapter 16. It's a really, really cool story of the people who were involved and the first ones to hear the gospel there. But he's seen this church be started, and he's writing them this letter back while he's in prison. And he's writing to encourage them to give them an update on his status And what's interesting is that even in this bleak status and bleak situation where he's in prison for roughly two years, as he's writing this letter to them, we've already seen we're not even out of the first chapter yet, and what he's talking about over and over again is joy. (laughs) He's told us that we can have joy in our identity in Jesus, that we can have joy in our close friendships, that we can have joy even in our hurting. We saw last week that that even our our hurting can, can help us find happiness if it's aimed at the knowledge of Jesus, if it's aimed at people seeing his glory. So he's talking about joy over and over again, joy, this, this resilient, intense happiness that's only available to us in and from Jesus. He, he's saying, listen, here's a happiness that's unlike any other happiness. <laughs> it's, it's the same essence, but it's stronger because of its source. It's bigger and better because it's flowing from Jesus and it's centered upon Jesus and it's about Jesus. He's writing to tell them that. He's told them, as we looked at last week, here's how... I can have joy in my uncertainty. Remember, he wasn't sure if he was going to live or die. We're going to see as we jump in to verse 27 that he's going to write to them concerning joy in their uncertainties. How are they going to handle their, I don't know how it turns out. It's for them too. So verse 27, it says this. It says, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you're standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. Verse 28, 
and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation, and that is from God. So you see in verse 27, Paul's saying, hey, I've already said about myself, if I'm going to live or if I'm going to die, I'm not 100% certain, but I still have joy in that. And now he's turning in these verses, the focus back to the Philippians, and he's saying to them, you've got some uncertainty too. You've got some stuff going on that you don't know how it's going to turn out. He says, I may get to come back and be with you again. I may get to come and continue to write letters to you. I may get to continue to come and visit you and lead you and guide you and care for you and help you as your kind of founding pastor guy that you revere so much. I may get to do that again, or I may not. Whether I come and see you or whether I'm absent, he says. That's a, that's a big uncertainty for this church, right? This is, this is NSYNC not knowing if they're going to have Justin, right? That's a problem. This is the Jackson 5, no Michael, right? At that point, they're just the Jacksons who live somewhere nobody even knows anymore without that guy, right? This is a big deal. This is, hey, the central guy, the guy who's been your leader who has helped you, he may or may not get to continue on with you. And he says, listen, here's the deal. Whether I get to continue on or not, whether I get to be part of your lives and lead you or not, here's what I want for you. Here's what I charge you towards, verse 27. Only this. right? Focus on this. Let this be your focus. Let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we have to be really careful, I think, when we read that word worthy, because when we think worthy, there's this, this idea in us of the idea of earning something. <laughs> that I'm worthy of a promotion because I have worked hard enough, long enough, well enough to show that I've earned the promotion. But what Paul is talking about here is not earning the gospel. There's no such thing as earning the gospel of Jesus' grace. It doesn't happen. His standard is holiness, perfect righteousness. We don't meet that, period, said, and done. We don't earn that. What Paul is saying here is not go and live your life in a way that earns Jesus. Go and live in your life in such a way that he'll pay attention to you and, and treat you nicely and he'll like you and you'll be one of his favorite children because you're a quote-unquote good person. It's not what he's saying. He's saying go and live your life in a way that's, we might say, matching of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Go and live your life in a way that, that shows that you already have this gospel, that it's already been given to you, that God in his rich grace has already given you ill-deserved favor. And so go and live your life knowing that you have it, not trying to get it, but knowing that you have it. Live a life that matches this reality. There's a, the, a famous story about Alexander the Great. If you're a history buff, you know him. Even if you're not, you probably still know him because you had to pass some, some, some social studies classes, right? Alexander the Great conquered most of the known world at his time. This, this notorious king and, and battle and just taking people and just destroying and domineering and overtaking his enemies. There's a story, and I don't know if there's any truth to it or if it's just a fable. There's actually three or four different versions of it out there I researched this week. But I'll tell you how I heard it was that there was a moment when they were about to enter into the conquest of another place. And as they were getting ready and everybody was getting mounted up and getting their lines drawn and ready to run in and go into battle, he started running the line on his horse. He was going back behind the lines of battle and checking to see how everything was, make sure everything was strategically set up as he wanted it to be. And as he was doing that, he found a young soldier who was running away, who just couldn't take it anymore. Was The fear was too much, whatever it was. He was running away from battle. And Alexander the Great found this guy, and he said, Son, what's your name? And the way I heard the story is that the guy just kind of sits there silent for a minute, and he says, Son, what is your name? And this, this kid is imagining probably that he's about to die. <laughs> Running away from battle, falling asleep as the watchman, those kind of things as, 
as soldiers in Alexander's army were punishable by death. Sometimes there's, there's, there's stories that he would pour kerosene on you if he found you asleep when you were supposed to be the watchman. He just set you on fire and it was done right there, right? You'd be having a dream thinking, man, this is warm in here. It feels good. And then be like, whoa, no, it's not, right? It feels bad, right? He, he would kill you for that kind of thing. He finds this kid and this kid is nervous as all get out because he knows, man, I, I've done the wrong thing. He just, he says again, what is your name, son? And, and the boy says, my name's Alexander. Named just like the king. And Alexander the Great is said to have looked at him and said, well, then you will either have to change your character or you'll have to change your name. So he said, I'm this great, powerful king. You're sharing my name. What I'm saying to you is turn around and go get back in battle. Change your actions right now. Change what you're doing right now. Or you're going to have to change your name and stop using a name that makes people think of me. And, and maybe not so sharply, maybe not so bluntly, but I think the idea is the same in what Paul is saying here to the people. Whether I come to you or whether I don't, whether things are easier for you or they're harder, whether it's mountaintop or whether it's valley, either way, what I want you to do is live your life in such a way that your character matches the gift of God's grace that's been given to you. Now, how would we do that? He tells us, right? He says, I want to hear of you if I'm far away, I want reports coming to me. I want to hear of you that you're standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. He wants them to be standing firm in one spirit. So this is the idea of defense, right? This is their opposition is coming our way, and we are standing strong against opposition. We're not being moved by opposition. And in our spirit, and our very souls, we have a unity that is strong and united. I just say this to you, I'm not a, a believer of, of just absolutely bashing everything about culture and, and there's nothing out there that's good and there's nothing out there that honors God or images God because there's every single person out in our world is made in the image of God, right? So there's a lot of stuff out there that we can see and help us understand God. We're even told in scripture about different places to go and look and understand God. Go watch the ants, how they work. Right? And so when we think about the world around us, we think about culture, everything is not out, out there is not bad. I'm not here to harp on things, but I am here to make sure we're getting this and that we're seeing this, right? that, that our culture may not have that big of an issue with casual Christianity, but our, our culture is opposed to radically following Jesus. And it's going to grow more and more so. We're seeing that turn up. And so there's coming a time in our lives probably, but for many of us, we're going to have to decide, listen, am I, am I going to keep claiming this Jesus even though it's going to be hard and though it's going to be costly and even though people are going to look at me, my life's not going to make sense to them, even though it's going to be strange to them, even though my kids may not necessarily enjoy some of my leadership? Am I going to be that person or am I going to fade away from what I believe? He says, listen, I want you to be a people not who... Have, have all your preferences the same. He's not talking about uniformity, that we all have to be exactly alike. In fact, that flies in the face of the gospel. The gospel says that Jesus' love for us is, is right there present even in the midst of our vast differences because we have one uniting thing, and that's him. They're stronger than all of them. He's not talking about uniformity, but he is saying in the most important things, you have a unity that stands strong. And then get this, he doesn't just talk about defense. He doesn't just say that you're standing firm against opposition. He takes it a step further. I think this is really important for us as followers of Jesus in America in 2022. He says, I want you to be striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. This is offense. 
This is striving, working together, side by side, arms linked. We have a plan and we are going forward with this hope that we have in Jesus. We're not content to just sit and just be doing good at what we're not for and standing on our morals, but we're actually going, hey, that's not going to be enough. We're going to take this message of Jesus forward through our lives, through our efforts collectively in ministry as a church. We're going to take the gospel forward. We're going to strive side by side. Man, what does that kind of unity inspire you to think of and dream about? How does that lift our minds and hearts to go, man, what if God did something really awesome in us where we don't have to agree on every detail, but on the the matter of Jesus and our hopelessness without him and the freedom we have in him, we are united. And so we stand firm in one spirit. And regarded to that most important thing, we strive forward with one mind, not content. Not content just to welcome those who might walk into our lives, hopefully. Not content just to make sure everybody knows what we're against as followers of Jesus instead of knowing what we're for. Not content to sit and play defense, but we will be a people who honor the Jesus who left heaven and came to us. We will be a people who go to others. We will strive side by side for faith of the gospel. I want you to see this, that active gospel unity shines bright in the face of opposition. And almost redundant to say that word active, but we need to say it because it could be passively that we sit back on our hands and just try to hold our ground. But we're called to strive. We're called to go forward. I'm excited about the future of Dublin Bible Church as I'm praying and thinking through what's that going to look like for us and, and what is God doing in us. Listen, we got to be a people who want to go forward. And as we do, we can take great comfort in the fact that active gospel unity shines brightly in the face of opposition. I recently read a story with our deacons here that I was unaware of back when Germany took control of the Netherlands. Did you know that it was the deacons of the church who, who really repealed some of the extra layers of, of hate and, and animosity and opposition that would have been coming the Netherlands way? It was the deacons in the church who, as servants, who didn't care about their own glory or their own comfort. It was the deacons who were going around and making sure these people oppressed by the Germans and overtaken by war had food that they needed, making sure that they had a place of refuge to stay. And it was such that the Germans caught wind, hey, it's these deacons that are doing all this. It's these church deacons that are doing this thing that's causing us to have. These people are are maintaining a strength of spirit we don't want them to have. They're remaining a a fight and an opposition that we don't want them to have. And it's the deacons who are feeding that because they're serving them, caring for them, sustaining them. And so the Germans thought, well, we'll go and we'll attack them then. And, And the people, the Dutch people said, no, 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 no. If you mess with our servants, the ones who serve us, you're messing with our worship and we will Revolt, we'll push back. And it was enough of a threat that the Germans went, okay, we're going to leave that alone. (laughs) See, they were just a group of regular, everyday people. They were deacons, kind of the the unseen leaders in the church, the ones who serve in the areas where sometimes people don't even know that it happens, the ones who very much image Christ in that. They were just a group of regular people committed to serving, committed to going forward with the love of Jesus, even in the midst of war and hostility. But Because they went forward together, because they went forward in the name of Jesus with the love of Jesus, they became this radiant beam showing his glory in a moment where it was probably hard to see his hand in a lot of places. When we're active 
in our unity against opposition and we're active in our unity to take the gospel forward, people will see that and honor Jesus. Will every person see that and honor Jesus? No. Will they do it as quickly as we might like? Probably not. God usually doesn't let us write his story. But should we have expectation that it absolutely will happen? Absolutely so. It's called a unity. It's not just a rally cry before a game. It's not just uniting the sales force before the next quarter because we've got to hit higher numbers. This is meaningful, impactful. It matters. Jesus prays in John chapter 17 near the end of his life. He's talking to the Father, and one of the things he says there is, God, praying for us, for followers of Jesus in the future. He says, let them be one, even as we are one, so that they may see and know that, I, that, that you exist, God. Our unity, our oneness is supposed to be so bright and resilient that people can see that and go, man, there's something obviously going on there, and they can research that and find God easily. This message of unity, it matters. What is it going to achieve both in our lives and what's it going to achieve in the lives of those who are watching? Verses 29 and 30. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in him but also Suffer for his sake. I'm going to read that again. I underline in your mind, at least, the word granted and suffer. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. Engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. So Paul is saying it's been granted to you, it's been given to you, it's been gifted to you. Hey, you're going to get this good thing is what he's saying. But it kind of feels like one of those moments in life where somebody says to you, hey, I'm going to give you this. And you go, hey, I don't really know if I really want that. You ever gotten one of those presents? And you're like, I'm not sure that I want the guinea pig for Christmas. <laughs> Sounds like that brings more mess and burden than joy and delight. I once worked, um, more than once actually, a couple of different dry cleaners, right? And so if you ever have a spot, you need to know what gets it out. I'm your boy, all right? If you're ever wondering, what distinct color would you call this? I can probably help you out. I know things about eggplant, coral, chartreuse, right? I'm your guy, right? I used to have to describe them all. all right? And one of the cleaners that I worked at was a sweet older couple, Mr. and Miss Robinson. They were the owners. And she would say to me sometimes, she was just so sweet. I think she just didn't want to offend or want to come across too sharp. But she would say to me sometimes about multiple things, but the thing I remember it most was about sweeping. It'd come to the end of the day, time to clean up shop, and she'd say, I'm going to let you sweep. <laughs> and listen, because I love Jesus, I always thought, what an honor, Miss Robinson. Let me hug you. No, the reality is that because I still have flesh hanging out in me, there were times, right? Not every time, but there were times when she would say, I'm going to let you sweep. And my first thought in my mind was, I'm going to let you sweep, right? I'm going to pass the honor back to you. You get to sweep the whole building, right? Who wants to get to sweep? That's not really a gift. And if we're not careful, it kind of feels like that, doesn't it? Because Paul's saying to the church at Philippi, and it's application to us, hey, it's been granted to you. It's been given to you. It's been gifted to you. I'm going to let you Suffer, says God. He'll let you suffer. It's been granted to you that you wouldn't only believe in Jesus, but that belief would lead you to places in your life that you're also going to suffer for his sake. He says, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had. What I think he's talking about there is 
when he was actually beaten and faced opposition and imprisoned in Philippi. You can go back to Acts and check that out. Be saying, you've seen that I had this and you hear now that I still have this kind of opposition in my life. It's been granted to you that you're going to face maybe not the same exact thing, but the same kind. Similar opposition. Listen, we live in a context where the opposition is mounting and growing, yes, but it's also so small in comparison to what brothers and sisters across this world face. We live in a context where our opposition, maybe our family members, not liking it so much if we try to share the gospel. Man, and that's hard, and I don't want to make light of that, but they're probably not going to take out a sword and slash your throat. Just guessing. I hadn't met your family, but I'm guessing. In the context that we live in, the opposition is not as great as it is elsewhere, but it's still hard and it's still struggle. Are we willing to step into that for the sake of Jesus? Because it's been granted to us that that might happen in our lives. Not that we go out looking for the struggle and the strain, but we go out looking for the obedience and the proclamation of Jesus through our lives. I promise you the struggle and the tension will find us. But take rejoicing in this. The reason that Paul can say, hey, it's been gifted to you, it's been granted to you, it's coming your way. The reason he can say that like a positive is because united suffering for Jesus carries a distinct honor and resultant happiness. (laughs) When we suffer for Jesus, there's a distinct honor there. When we talk about honor at our house, when I talk about honor to my kids, I try to break it down real small for my little brain and then communicate it to them. I just say honoring somebody is to treat them like they're special. Honor them. Treat them like they're special. Listen, there is honor. There is us being treated as if we're special to get to carry the name of Jesus. When we suffer together in his name, there's a sense of honor. And here's the reality is that we're not going to really enjoy that. We're not going to find that resultant happiness and gladness in that just by hearing that this morning sitting here. We're going to experience it by faith when our faith carries us to step into the obedience and proclaim him when it carries us to step into obedience and live in a way that honors him and it looks different than others and people notice because it's weird. (laughs) It's then, it's when we step in and live it, that's when we're going to feel this sense of honor and it goes, man, this stinks and this hurts and I wish this wasn't this way and yet and still I lay my head on my pillow in peace because I know that the best I can by faith, I'm honoring the Lord Jesus. (laughs) And nothing can touch that. There's honor there that will bring resultant happiness. Saw a documentary once on a race that happens every year just outside of Knoxville, Tennessee. It's called the Barkley Marathon. It's a a five-lap, 100-mile ultra-marathon trail race. So you go out, you do a lap. The, The contestants always say that it's more than 100 miles, but we'll just say 20 miles, you do a lap. It's up and down mountains. It's particularly, specifically, purposefully through briar patches. They come back with their legs shredded up. They go through this thing. You make it all the way around. You can take a couple of minutes if you want to. You've only got 60 hours to do this, by the way. You can take some time if you'd like to grab a bike, change socks, whatever. You head back out in the opposite direction, do the whole thing again. Except the amount of time that you've spent to do the first lap in your break means now you're doing it in the dark. You do that twice, and then you get to do it once on the end just for the cherry on top and extra. And at the end, 
If you're the very first person, you get to pick which direction you want to go because you have to alternate directions until then. You get to pick which way, and then everybody has to alternate. So you're passing people on your last lap. You're exhausted. You're tired. You don't know what's going on. You don't know who's supposed to be going which way. They, they call this race. It's so, so ridiculous, so hard. It's been named by people the race that eats its young. <laughs> it's like, hey, this race is so intense. You come in here, you may not come out. Here's the deal about this race. They take, uh, as last I knew, they took 40 participants every year. 40. They have thousands of people apply to get to go run this race. This race that tears you up and cuts you to shreds, this race that most don't finish, there are years when nobody finishes. This hard, grueling process, they have thousands of people who want to get in on this, and, and they go, no, we're, we're just going to take 40. As I watch this documentary, multiple things happen in my mind. Of course, what always happens in my mind is like, I could, I'm going to do that. I could do that. And then I got up and was walking to get ice cream from the fridge and got out of breath and was like, no, no. No, I think so. Huh? But I did. I thought, man, I might, maybe I could start training. Maybe I could do something tough like that. Man. And I was like, no, nah, I don't think so. But I also was just taken with how for each other all of these contestants were. How willing to help each other they were. How some would spend longer and go slower to help somebody who was struggling. Sometimes having to walk an hour in a different direction to help them find the path again just so they could start their walk back to quit. Talk about agony, you got to walk two hours back to quit. That's pain. I watched these people be for each other. It was interesting at the end, right, there were two guys the year that I was watching. The, these two guys finished, and you could not have seen two guys be more celebratory for the other. They were racing. One of them was going to beat the other. They were competitors, and yet they were just absolutely so excited as they both came across the line a few minutes apart from each other to just hug each other. And, man, they just stood there. As I remember, they might have wept a little bit because this thing had drained every bit of physical, emotional, spiritual, mental, everything they had. And yet they were so glad because they had done this thing, and they had done it together. And I watched as the crowd of all the other participants and family came around them, and there was this big thing of just really dirty, sweaty, bloody, big hug, and just everybody just loved each other because they had just done hard together. Now, what they deem as worthy of that kind of hardship may be different than what I deem as worthy of that kind of hardship. For me to do that, somebody's going to be like, hey, I got your wife and kids. I'm going to be like, five laps, here I come, right? Not a medal at the end. <laughs> what they deem may have been different than what I would deem, but for them, it was worth it. For them, it was a worthwhile goal. It was this big, huge thing to aim for, and they had done it together, and you could see the smiles in their faces. You could see the warmth in their heart expressed through their outward affection. They were together, and they had managed to do this hard thing together. Just want to say to you today, church, that Jesus, he's the point of this gospel that we're to live a life that's worthy of, that matches that. The gospel doesn't start with you. The gospel doesn't start with your good decision. The gospel starts with us dead in sin and a God who's gracious to awaken our hearts to love him. Starts with a God who's giving ill-deserved kindness and favor to rebels whose hearts are against him. The gospel is that a holy God with a holy standard saved rebellious sinners like me 
through the sacrifice of his solely sufficient son named Jesus. He's the only one that could have made it work for me to be accepted by God. That is the gospel. And individually, as we begin to aim our lives at knowing that more, at trusting that more, not just for our one-day salvation, but for our today, for our today faith to not spout off at the mouth when somebody has given me opportunity, for today's faith to be faithful with my finances, even though there's a lot of things calling me elsewhere. For today's faith, I need to trust this gospel. And as I set out to aim my life towards that, there will be more difficulty coming than less. All those who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. That's what the Bible says. Can I just say to you that as we continue to strive together, united, across our differences and go, yeah, I'm different in you in, in what kind of song may be my favorite song to sing. I'm different in you in what kind of exact ministry we might do collectively together as a church in our, in our city. I'm different than you in this. I'm different than you in that. Our preferences may be vastly different, but as we unite in the fact that Jesus has saved me a sinner and made me a saint and he has done the same in you and we want other people to know that, the more that we unite in that and move forward, the more there will be opposition in our lives one way or another. Listen to me, and it's, it's a promise that you can only experience the goodness of if you step towards it in faith. That the gospel does shine brightly against opposition when it's through active unity of God's people. And when we take that unity and we suffer for the glory of God where it's necessary, there is a distinct rich honor there. And there's a resultant happiness from knowing I get to carry the name of my King Jesus. Who are the people in your life that need to hear about that king? Where are the decisions in your life that aren't honoring that king? Where are the patterns in our lives that maybe even are simple things, but we need to go, man, I need to change that. Because that thing is turning my attention. It's turning my heart's affection away from Jesus instead of towards Jesus. Are we willing to be a people that are so set on seeing Jesus and seeing him together that we're willing to struggle where necessary to do that, to see and show him. How do you need to respond to this word today? I'm trusting God to lead you in that.